0: We teach Us. Welcome
1: to the We Teach Us Podcast, a space to reimagine our education system. This is episode two, and I'm your facilitator, Ryan Dalton. Let's get started. All right. Today's do now question is: Why do some schools receive less funding and resources than others?
0: Mm, I believe it depends on like, like what side of town it's on or like what neighborhood it's in.
1: It depends on like stuff like
0: that.
2: Hmm. Um. I would say that is based off of uh, why schools may receive less funding than others. Um. I would look at that as. Um, a political situation where it depends on the demographics of the school, uh, where it's located and who's attending that school. Um, I would say poor kids seems to get less
0: funding than kids who are affluent and things of that nature. So um, I, I think that's probably my answer to that question uh well i mean getting into the 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 not to get into so much as far as the student teacher ratio and all that good stuff um I know because I've worked in two different systems. Um, I've worked in two different systems, and one system uh, required a little more than the bigger system. So I think they kind of base it off of the needs of each system, and it's just based off of what each. Um, I think what each system is going to be needing as far as resources that the bigger systems can afford to actually get themselves. <laughs>
3: Um, Because our test scores be low, and when your test score is low, they really don't care about their school. They care about the ones that have the
2: highest test score. Racism. Um, I learned this from a teacher. Like, he really just very, he inspired me. He picked me on game. That the school, school's funding is so racist. Like, the zoning, I feel it's horrible. Cause like if, like I learned that school actually get paid for through home taxes or somewhere up in there. So I feel they should change something, and get it back right. Now. This
1: Week in the News. All right, joining me this week in the news and every week is my number one co-teacher, my real life partner and my wife, Ronnie Dalton. <laughs> hey. Hey, how you doing? You know, when I was just saying that, I was thinking about the fact that we actually, besides the fact that we regularly co-teach our children, um, which doesn't really count, (laughs) I guess, um, we were actual co-teachers at one point in Brooklyn.
3: Oh my gosh, yes. We
1: co taught a class together.
3: That was my best co-teaching experience. That's before we were even involved with each other. And um, really, you absolutely were my best co-teacher. You and I'm not just saying that because you're my husband.
1: You're just saying that because you never had any other co-teachers?
3: <laughs> Maybe. No, <laughs> no, that's not, that's not the case. All right. So why don't you
1: start us off tonight? What's your first article?
3: Okay. This article is coming from HuffPost and the title says, Reading Proficiency Among U.S. Students' Declines, Nation's Report Card Reveals. Yikes. Yeah. Here are some quotes from the article. Okay. okay? This says the reading proficiency of fourth graders and eighth graders have declined in more than half of US states since 2017, according to to the results of a national student achievement test recently released. The NAEP is taken every two years by a sample of fourth and eighth graders in reading and math. This year's results were based on the test scores of about 600,000 students in all 50 states and the District of Columbia. And they showed a decline in performance in almost all categories. Wow. So the students that were the lowest performing just continued to do even worse. Um, And the article went on to share some pretty alarming stats. So 35% of fourth graders were considered to be not proficient in reading. Oh, my gosh. And it says here, in addition to that, 34% 34% of eighth graders were considered not to be proficient in reading. Wow. That's bleak. Yeah. <laughs> that's
1: And and you know you said it's a, a sample size of 600,000. So that's a that's a significant sample size. I know right. it's maybe not representative of the entire country, but 600,000 students, that's
3: pretty Pushing on a
1: million. That's a little over half a million.
3: Pretty substantial amount to conclude that there are more students that cannot read on grade level than can yeah uh, it's pretty it's pretty alarming That's shocking and unfortunate and very disturbing <laughs> so some education experts are weighing in trying to suggest reasons for this um, decline in performance and they're suggesting that this decline in performance is due to spending cuts
1: whoa that's not at all what i expected you to say <laughs> i was i was like i was my mind was on the like cell phones kids are on social media these days they're using text language so they don't read anymore i was not expecting spending cuts
3: you would think that that would come up but <laughs> right it makes sense that spending cuts will be linked to this lower performance because if you have less resources, you have larger class sizes, right? you know it is more difficult for a teacher to be able to spend that one-on-one time with a student to you know, make sure they're really getting the support that they need, so it it does make sense just one last point from this article, DeVoe is referring to this as the student achievement crisis,
1: she's a student achievement crisis (laughs) (laughs) she really you know what She's the crisis.
3: And I mean, like, many people are criticizing her for her response to this because she is a major person who is encouraging cuts to education. Right.
1: Yeah. So, especially with the connection of this being apparently, according to experts, related to cuts. Exactly. She's the crisis. Definitely. (laughs) All right. So... My first article is it's from the Progressive. Um, the title is called "The Charter to Prison Pipeline," and uh, I just want to say before I even get into this, I'm not against charter schools in any way. Um, I'm I'm not pro or against charter schools. I'm pro education. I'm pro also choice where it exists. Um, mm. But I do think it's important to look at all of our systems critically and be able to look at everything that's going on. So this article, um, the the opening says the charter system that often paints itself as a better option for black parents does not acknowledge the harm rigid disciplinary policies can impose on black students. Mm. So the article is basically talking about how. Um, Traditional public schools get a bad rap for the school-to-prison pipeline and zero-tolerance policies and policing in the schools. Um, But charter schools, which are often seen as a better option are doing the very same thing. Mm. And in some ways, even worse in some cases. Um, So here's a quote from the article. It says, some charter schools lacking the mandate that traditional public schools have to provide an education for all students, implement a no excuses discipline policy. Mm. These policies can result in increased suspensions and expulsions for even minor violations. So when I read that, I was really thinking about this video that went viral a couple of years ago. and it was some students in Brooklyn who had been kicked out of their charter school because they had the wrong shoes on. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't even, it was one of those things where they had been told they had to wear black shoes and they had on black shoes, but it had white soles. Wow. Um, And so because of that, they were kicked out. And so it was this whole group of students that were just walking around during the school day. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's something that public, traditional public schools cannot do right. you you can't turn kids away from school because they don't have a proper uniform on right. um, and we've worked we've worked in a school setting where uniforms were a big issue and a lot of kids were not in compliance right. but we couldn't just send them out the door no um, another little quote I got from the article says a 2016 study from the center for civil rights remedies found that at 500 charter schools across the nation suspension rates in 2011 and 2012 for black students were at least 10% higher than for their white peers at 374 charter schools studied more than 25% of their students were suspended at least once in 2011 and 2012 school year. So, the same thing that is happening with the school to prison pipeline that gets talked about in public school setting is happening in the charter setting and it's still disproportionately focusing on black students. Um, So yeah, it's, it's just, it's not good.
3: Yeah. I think it's great that this article is, you know, talking about this because you're right a lot of people view the charter school as a better alternative because they're uh they have such a good reputation with education but how rigid they are and how uh black and brown students are being treated in these environments for pretty normal kid behavior right is uh is 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 really unacceptable
1: it is i mean To me, it's unacceptable in any school setting, point blank, period. It doesn't matter if it's charter, public, private, whatever. If we're um, expelling and suspending kids at such a rate and in that black and brown students are disproportionately targeted over their white peers, it's just wrong. It doesn't matter where it is. What's your second article?
3: Okay. My second article is coming from fatherly. And the title is called The Teacher Shortage is Getting Worse. Here's a big reason why. And would you like to guess what the big reason why? Um, I'm guessing
1: it's similar to the original article. and goes back to finances and teachers not getting paid. You're right. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty easy.
3: Okay, here's a quote from the article. A few weeks ago, the Economic Policy Institute released a report based on data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics that illustrated a troubling finding. The United States is experiencing a 307,000 job shortage in public education positions. 307,000? Yes. What? (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, when you have so many teachers going on strike to bring attention to the fact that they aren't getting paid enough, um they they need smaller class sizes they need better education for our students it is no wonder that people are not being attracted to the field of education <laughs> hello
1: <laughs> and you know you you mentioned those things um and people often have this idea that it's teachers being selfish the teachers just want more money and and really we know as teachers i mean we're we're struggling to scrape by sometimes just on our salaries right but What teachers are also asking for is is beneficial to students. It's also for the students' well-being. Smaller class sizes, that helps students, not just teachers. Right. Um, It gives students better quality education. Exactly.
3: Uh, So the article does go on to say, so it's clear to see that in Oklahoma and Arizona, West Virginia and across the country where there should be more than 300,000 additional public education teachers, it doesn't make sense to become a teacher. You won't get paid. You won't be set up for success in the classroom. And unless you're in a state with a supermajority, you and your union go on a massive strike. It's hard to say that anything will change funding wise.
1: Wow. Seems overwhelming. Absolutely. Well, uh, we just got to find 300,000 people to fill these spaces.
3: (laughs) I mean, well, they did say the hopeful thing is that when teachers do get tired enough to decide to go out into the streets and apply pressure, that really is our only hope for change is teachers, you know going out there and being willing to fight for it
1: yeah and it's sad that it takes that but we're seeing it across the country and uh i think we're seeing some change come yep ever so
3: slowly that's so true
1: all right well my uh second and final article is actually one that hits very close to home like so close to home it's gonna hit us right now um (laughs) But uh, I wanted to focus on it because it actually goes well with this particular episode. It's an article that I'm actually featured in um, (laughs) by the Montgomery Advertiser. Wow. Uh, The title is Too Hot to Even Focus. Lack of Air Conditioning at Lanier Added Misery During Montgomery's Heat Wave. So basically, this article is focusing on the fact that the school that I teach at, we don't have air conditioner in our auditorium, in our gym, in the Mm -hmm. hallways of the school. Wow. Wow. Um, all the classrooms have these little window units and I would say about half of them work pretty good. Mm -hmm. And then the other half, you know, on any given day, they might be frozen up or not working properly. Um, but this article came about because we had our football homecoming festivities and we had a commencement ceremony in the auditorium and there were all the students, uh, the whole like homecoming court along with our student government that had just been elected and along with all our clubs. All of our clubs had like Mr. and Miss Environmental Science Mm -hmm. Club and all that. So they're all up on the stage. We have the entire student body packed in the auditorium. We have all the teachers and faculty in there. And the students are all dressed up in their suits. I mean, Mm -hmm. they're kitted out. They look great. They had their suits on. The girls had their dresses on. They had makeup and their hair done. And they're in there And this is right in the middle of a heat wave. And every day that week was a record high. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is not like New York city, this is Alabama, you know, so, you know, it was swampy and hot in there and it was literally suffocating. We Uh. had, um, guests, some, some previous linear alumni, some community members, and this one older lady had to actually leave the auditorium and go outside to catch her breath because she, she felt like she was suffocating. Um, but the, it, it was just, it hit me that day and I was like, this is so unfair. So I, I put a post on Facebook about it and um, the journalist from that wrote this article contacted me and, and, and did wow. this story. Um, one of the students is quoted in the story. is Zedrick McCall. He's a senior who was just crowned Mr. Lanier. And he says, it really doesn't make sense, honestly. The auditorium is just unfair. And 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 to me it's beyond unfair. It's unjust. It's inhumane. Um in 2019 that we subject students and teachers to that type of I would say injustice is just is just wild.
3: I mean, it's unacceptable. Um, There are schools right here in the city where a situation like that would not even exist. Oh, it would not happen. Never. And across the nation, some students, I mean, people hearing this might be shocked, but this is y'all reality. Yeah. And some kids, they can't even fathom being in a a position like this. And it's not fair and it's not right.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's schools here like and I'm thinking like magnet schools and things like that in the city that if their air was out for one day, they would be closing the school down. They would be, you yes. know, parents would be in an uproar and things like that. Whereas this this was not a situation where our air was just out. Right. I've worked, this is my fourth year working at this school, and the air has been out since, I mean, we've never had air since I've worked no. there. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's not right. But I know that... Especially working at an older, larger campus in Brooklyn, the situation wasn't that much different, if you remember. Um, We had window units and not every classroom even had window units up there. So we know that some schools in some areas just don't have access that other schools have.
3: Right, and unfortunately, students just get used to it, and that's all that they know. Yeah. But it it is heartbreaking, and it's it's unacceptable.
1: Right. It's not something that anybody should have to get used to, right. but definitely not our kids. Exactly. All right, well, that was This Week in the News. Uh, thank you so much for joining me again.
3: Thank you for having me. Um, It's, it's a pleasure.
1: <laughs> all right. Okay. I do. On the first episode I focused on the general failings of the education system in America and in every conversation something that consistently came up that people listed as a contributing factor to our failing system was how resources are inequitably distributed to schools and relatedly how this is often due to the continued segregation of our neighborhoods and therefore schools most specifically at the intersection of race and class. Though it is impossible to limit the causal factors of why our education system is failing down to one specific cause, it is an undeniable fact that many of our schools are merely failing because they do not have access to proper funding and resources. And in America, when it comes to the quote, haves and have nots, who does or does not have is most often based in history and reinforced by unjust institutionalized systems of domination. People not paying attention, possibly due to the convenient myopic perspective afforded to them by privilege, might not be aware of just how segregated our schools still are. We would like to believe that segregation in America is a far-off distant history. I mean, the U.S. Supreme Court declared that segregated schools were unconstitutional on May 17, 1954, right? The reality is, though Brown versus Board of Education was indeed a historic case, segregation in schools is not quite history just yet. Let's look at Montgomery, Alabama as a case study. This is my fourth year living and teaching in Montgomery. I work in one of the bigger traditional public high schools in the city. My school, like 11 other public schools in the city, is on the state's failing schools list. As a high school, we are joined on the list by two of the five other traditional public high schools in the area. At this point, it would be remiss of me not to point out that those three failing public schools are all named after Confederate figures, though the racial demographics of the schools are made up of an overwhelmingly black student population. Named after a Confederate poet, Sidney Lanier High School's overall student population is made up of 99% black students. Named after a Confederate general. Robert E. Lee High School's overall student population is made up of 85% black students. And named after the President of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis High School's overall student population is made up of 93% black students. Though those three public high schools named after white supremacists now serve a majority black student population, all three schools historically served a majority white student population and this racial demographic shift from majority white to majority black that uncoincidentally happened around the time of forced integration is true for the vast majority of the public schools in Montgomery. In 1954, when segregation was declared unconstitutional, Montgomery, the capital of the Confederacy, was resistant to change. This was true for the entire state of Alabama. Huffington Post's Black Voices This Day in History reports. On September 10th in 1963, 20 black students entered previously all-white public schools in Birmingham, Mobile, and Tuskegee, Alabama. This day came after a major standoff between federal authorities and Governor George C. Wallace, where students were turned away. 11 other states and 144 school districts began the desegregation process without major incidents. However, in Alabama, the federal government was forced to step in because of the actions of Governor Wallace. The governor ordered state patrolmen to block the doors of schools to prevent black students from entering. So almost 10 years after segregation was considered unconstitutional, Alabama finally, yet unwillingly, began the process of integration. As schools in Montgomery were forced to integrate and black students began to be bused into previously predominantly white schools, there was a mass exodus of white students whose families pulled them out of the public schools. It consequently may come as no surprise that some of the major private schools in Montgomery serving a majority white student population were established around that same time. Because of this, these private schools and those like them across the country are referred to as segregation academies. White flight continued as white families evaded Montgomery Public Schools through private schools, starting entirely new school districts, and by homeschooling their children. Simultaneously, and to support these new developments, Montgomery embarked on the process of rezoning. These rezonings not only began to change who was allowed to go to which school based on their neighborhood's location, they also impacted how schools were funded in the area. As we know, a large portion of school funding comes from property taxes, and a large portion of white homeowners in Montgomery, now completely disinvested in the public school system, were not keen on paying high property taxes. Policy analyst and one of the hosts of Forward South podcast, Dylan Nettles, explains how property taxes are used to fund schools and what that
4: specifically looks like in Montgomery, Alabama. Alabama has some of the lowest property taxes in the country. While property taxes in the state serve as an important source of revenue for local governments and public services, including public education, the average Alabama homeowner pays just $558 per year in property taxes. That's about a quarter of the national average of $2,090. A millage rate is the tax rate used to calculate local property taxes. 10 mils is the equivalent of $10 for every $1,000 of the assessed property value. NPS currently receives a state minimum of 10 mils, which yields about $28 million. For a comparison, Birmingham City Schools, a school system with 6,000 fewer students than MPS's 29,000 and a similar city population figure, gets 24 mils and received $84 million in Avalorum taxes in 2017. Montgomery last had a property tax increase referendum in 1994 when 54% of citizens voted against it, most in East Montgomery. The county showed a bit more willingness to increase taxes during the state's 2004 Amendment 1 vote, a vote that failed statewide but was approved by 54% of Montgomery citizens. Today, the vast majority of
1: traditional public schools in Montgomery are failing their students, parents, educators, and community, though it is obvious that the failure is due to systemic issues. The classrooms are overcrowded, the schools are understaffed and underfunded, and the literal school buildings and infrastructure around them are crumbling. In December 2018, Krista Johnson with the Montgomery Advertiser reported that Montgomery Public Schools had over $200 million in deferred maintenance, exposing many Montgomery students and teachers to inhumane conditions with buildings actually falling apart around them. As previously stated, a large number of the public schools in Montgomery are on the state's failing schools list. Relatedly, In March 2018, a review conducted showed that eight out of the nine evaluatory areas were below standard, putting Montgomery Public Schools accreditation in question. Their current status is accredited, but under review. The state was literally questioning whether or not Montgomery Public Schools education could be accredited. In 2018, the Public Affairs Research Council of Alabama found that though Montgomery's graduation rate was 81.1%, there was a huge disparity in the college and career readiness of the students, sitting only at 50.6%. And as the majority black population of students in Montgomery are left to fend for themselves, many white families in the area continue to look for loopholes and ways out. An example of this was outlined in an article by Jeff Amy of the Associated Press. Amy's article focused on Pike Road, an area that pulled out of Montgomery County in 2015, and the broader occurrence of this
2: across the country. Amy wrote, Pike Road pulled out of Montgomery County School District in August 2015, leaving the much larger district even more heavily African American than it was before. And Pike Road is not alone. A new study finds that the carving out of new school districts in the South is increasingly dividing white students from their Black and Latino peers, reinforcing segregation. It can help draw the boundaries around white spaces, said Erica Frankenberg, a Penn State University professor who was one of the three authors of the study, published Wednesday in AERA Open, a journal of the American Educational Research Association. Those who study the creation of new school districts call the exits secession, conscious of the Civil War overtones that has for districts in the South. The issue is particularly important, Frankenberg says, because the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in 1974 that courts couldn't order desegregation across district lines. That means that while an individual district may be able to find ways to more effectively integrate students, district lines usually pose fatal obstacles to such efforts. Amy later points out, In the Montgomery County District, nearly 80% of its 28,000 students last year were black, in large measure due to the population within the district. But the study finds that Pike Road, with 2,000 students, also is contributing to segregation in the larger system. The share of white students has fallen significantly in the Montgomery County schools where Pike Road students formerly attended. Park Crossing High School was 17% white before Pike Rose seceded, and only 5% white last year. Blount Elementary School was 47% white, while last year it was 37% white. And here's where the buck stops, or maybe starts.
1: Amy pointed out.
2: Beyond racial overtones, those who study secession say there's also a resource disparity. Voters in Pike Road agreed to a property tax increase, and the school is spending $10 million to renovate its high school, a historically black campus that it bought from Montgomery County for another $10 million.
1: Though this is Montgomery's story, this story is not exclusive to Montgomery, and it is definitely not confined to the South. Cities all over the country are in similar situations. Major American cities like Chicago and New York City see same levels of segregation, along with the same levels of accompanying disparities in funding and resources. All of the mentioned factors, mixed with others not even mentioned, leave principals, educators, and students of Montgomery Public Schools, and the many like them, traveling upstream without paddles in literal broken sinking ships. The teachers want to teach, the students want to learn, but we are not supporting them in the way that we should, in the way that they deserve. We are failing them. We are failing us. However, in Montgomery, just like in every district like it all over the country, there are principals, educators, students, and parents who are fighting for something better, fighting for the best quality education. The only thing is, I would argue, that this is not a fight that they should have to bear. Segregation was ended on paper 65 years ago. It's time that we end it now, once and for all, in actual reality. We do. This episode's guest is a friend and fellow activist, Brittany Packnett Cunningham. A lifelong activist, Brittany was active in the Ferguson uprising and is co-founder of Campaign Zero, a policy platform to end police violence. Brittany was a member of the Ferguson Commission and President Obama's Task Force on 21st Century Policing. Brittany is a policy expert, nonprofit executive, and a teacher. She is an unapologetic educator, organizer, and writer, and has committed her life and career to justice. Thank you so much, Brittany, for joining me.
0: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
1: Um, so let's just jump right into it. You know, tonight we're speaking about how our schools are very, still very segregated, um, white flight and other contributing factors that have led to this in many cities. I've focused on Montgomery as a case study. So my first question for you is, our schools in America are still very segregated and most specifically by race and class and the intersection of the two in many cases. How does this impact access to funding and resources for schools, in general, public schools?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that the way you asked that question is so important. Sometimes we have the conversation about school integration and seem to imply, at least to some of the listeners of the conversation, that we're really talking about the idea that somehow Black and brown children are made better by sitting next to and being in proximity to white children and whiteness. That's really not the point, right? The conversation about school integration has always and is still a conversation about equitable access to resources. Mm. And what it means right now is that our schools are continuously segregated because our neighborhoods are continuously segregated. There is research that proves time and again um, that when That when people of color move to neighborhoods, that white people move out, that white people do not typically want to be neighbors with people of color or people who are not like them. Um, And because we still base public school placement and public most public school placement and almost all public school funding on a property tax model, what that means is that poorer black and brown neighborhoods have fewer resources to put into their schools and wealthier white communities have more resources to put into their schools. Um, And and that is both in the direct ways and indirect ways, right? In the direct way saying that there are um, homes with lower wealth and lower value on which to place property taxes, which means that the taxes come back amounting to less, which means there is literally less being invested per pupil. What it also means is that when uh, parents have to provide school supplies to their children, um, when it's time to do Field trips, perhaps out-of-town trips as young people get older, that those resources coming directly from families are fewer and far between in in lower-income communities, right? So we see that there is a direct and indirect... Um, uh, cost to this literally and figuratively that there's a cost to this and the children ultimately are the ones who end up paying that cost um, so so that is part of the reason why the funding and the access to equitable resources uh, is not consistent across uh, segregated school systems
1: you answered that in a very great way and I think we, we keep using the word segregation, and I am the one who brought it up, but um, a lot of people, when they think about segregation, they think about the South, and they think it is exclusive to the South in America. Sure. Um, can you speak to neighborhood and then the related school segregation that exists throughout the country, not just in the South, um, in other parts of the country? Sure.
0: Yeah, so it happens in a number of ways. Like I said, uh, school segregation has a great deal to do with housing and neighborhood segregation. And any place where there was a practice or a history of redlining and restrictive covenants that disallowed Black people from buying into white neighborhoods, um, any place where um, white people have more access to the kinds of home loans that can get you into a house. Um, whereas, you know, black and brown folks end up remaining renters because they can't get access to that same kind of capital in any place where those things are true, uh, which is to say everywhere across this country, right. um, then you see housing segregation that often leads to school segregation. But there are other ways in which we see school segregation continuing to manifest right now in places, like you said, that are not at all in the American South. Uh, The New York City Public Schools, one of the largest public school systems in the entire country, uh, is one of the most segregated in the entire country. Uh, And it has everything to do with housing patterns. It also has to do with admissions models. So when you look at selective schools, magnet schools, schools that students have to test into, uh, we find that there are... um, very few black and brown students who gain admission to these schools. Um, there's a conversation to be had about the testing itself and whether or not those test tools are biased. It has everything to do with, um, the admissions process, right? A lot of times it can be about who you know, who you have access to, if you were able to access the kind of preparatory programs in middle school that uh, give you an open door to a more selective high school. Um, there was a lot of conversation about Stuyvesant High School in New York City this year, uh, because there are are literally a handful of black students in the entire school. Right. Um, And then I think that the last thing we have to talk about is exactly what diversity in a school means. Um, We often hear the catch-all term people of color and sometimes it is applicable, but if we are talking about the most disenfranchised in our society, um, we have to actually recognize Uh, the uh, special attention that certain groups require. Um, So uh, if you are not disaggregating your data, your data on students of color, by how many of those students are immigrant and how many of them are American born, by how many of those students are black and how many of those students are non-black, by how many of those students are indigenous and how many of those students are not indigenous, by even if you're looking at um, Asian American Pacific Islander students, if you're not disaggregating that data and figuring out how many South Asian students you've got versus East Asian, Asian students, then you're probably not actually capturing a picture of America. You are capturing a picture of, quote, people of color um, that uh, skews in one direction or another and doesn't actually, on balance, look as diverse as you might mean for it to. Um, So there are a lot of ways in which we see schools continue to be segregated across this country and most certainly not just in the American South.
1: Yeah. And um, I like it that you brought up New York because I... I myself taught there and saw it firsthand. Just I was shocked to see how segregated it is. Um, And to think that it's supposed to be this like, you know, I don't know, like a flagship city and supposed to be on the cutting edge and still so segregated when it comes to schooling
0: especially when you think about how ethnically diverse it is, right? Everybody assumes a melting pot there, but people are literally not living next to each other. So nothing in the pot is melting. People are building their own spaces, pursuing their own communities. uh, And, you know, the same was, I taught in DC and the same was true there. I taught um, back to back third grade classrooms where, out of 60 students over two years, only one of my students was not black and she was Guatemalan. A hundred percent of my students were students of color, um, wow. as was most of the most of the school.
1: Wow. Yeah, I uh, at the school I worked at in Brooklyn, it was in Crown Heights. And I would often when I would speak about the demographics of our school, various demographics, um, I would say, you know, and there is one white student and they're like, "Oh, 1%." And I say, "No, one. No, one, one single, single solitary one. white student."
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yep, yep.
1: 100%. So, a uh, oh, a while ago when you were here in Montgomery and we were talking, uh, I was speaking about the situation specific to here. Um and I was talking about how white flight really negatively impacted the schools in Montgomery and um what they call the district exit secessions that are happening where people are just have realized kind of the loophole and being able to just go to a different district and start mm-hmm. new schools and things. And you were saying how it 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 sounds a lot like Saint Louis. You said something yeah. that really hit me and you said all of that was the backdrop to Ferguson. Um are you able to expound on that a little bit?
0: Absolutely. So um You know, history matters, uh, not just because if we don't understand our history, we're doomed to repeat it, but also because it helps us properly contextualize the really critical moments. And Ferguson is burned into most people's consciousness because of the killing of Michael Brown Jr. on August 9th, 2014 because of the uprising that followed uh, because Mm. of the 400 days of sustained, disciplined, nonviolent direct action um, that, that made the Ferguson uprising the longest sustained direct action campaign in this country's history, longer than the Montgomery bus boycott. Um, But what happened a year before, as I told you, is really what set the stage for this kind of frustration to boil over. So the year before in 2013, uh, the Missouri Supreme Court heard a case that had been pursued through the state's court system. It was brought by a white parent who was zoned to send her children to St. Louis Public Schools. And at the time, St. Louis Public Schools had lost its accreditation, which means essentially that it did not meet the state's standards to be considered accredited. And it was working it's way back to being accredited. But um, essentially, that's the state's way of saying you're not providing a high quality education for the students there.
1: Wow. that That's literally the situation here in Montgomery right now. Um, yeah. Just to, yeah. to bring that comparison is the uh, state has said they question whether um, Montgomery public schools can even be accredited. And we're kind of under the process of trying to earn or I guess keep the right to be accredited. But yeah, right. it's just amazing the, right. the sorry to interrupt.
0: The the par- no, the parallels are out- outrageous especially when you think about how many folks are probably living in an unaccredited school district or a school district that is right on the line of being unaccredited and don't even realize it right? Like it's language that we don't use a lot in education anymore, but it right. is still a very real measurement at the state level and in fact at the time there were three school districts that were unaccredited St. Louis Public Schools. Wow. Um, actually four, St. Louis Public Schools, Normandy Public Schools, uh, which is where Michael Brown Jr. graduated from, Riverview Gardens Public Schools, which is right next door to, to Normandy. And then across, so those are those were three in the St. Louis region. And then the fourth district um, uh, was across the state in the Kansas City area. So at the time when this mother brought this suit, again, she was a white woman. She brought this suit um, because she had discovered a law that had been passed by John Ashcroft when he was governor of Missouri. If if you don't remember John Ashcroft ended up being a cabinet member for George W. Bush, lifelong yeah. Republican. Lots of people have opinions about uh, his time leading the state of Missouri. But during his time, he passed a law that essentially said that um, if a child is zoned to an unacc- to a school in an unaccredited school district, that they can transfer to a- an accredited school district within the area at the expense of the unaccredited school district. So the kid (laughs) can transfer and the money will follow them, right? Which essentially takes money out of the place that's struggling and puts it into the place that's already doing well. Um, This law had not really been enforced by our government agencies, right? So this mother found this law, got with a lawyer, and sued for her right to send her children, her her white children, to... um, to a neighboring school district. I keep mentioning her race because it is significant here that she was one of... Very few white parents sending their children to St. Louis public schools because the vast majority of the children who were affected by this issue were black um, or and or first generation American. And that'll be important again in just a second. So this mother sues, she it goes all the way through the court system. Ultimately, the Missouri Supreme Court decides to uphold and enforce this law. So suddenly school districts have to figure out how they are going to actually create a system in order for this happen. And there are different details in the law. One of the stipulations in the law was that the unaccredited school district had to pick one neighboring school district for which they would provide free transportation. So parents could pick any accredited school district in the region, but if you wanted your child to be able to ride the bus to school instead of you having to drop them off or find some other means, then you had to go with the school district that the unaccredited school district chose to provide transportation to. So even more money out of the pocket of the unaccredited school district. And so essentially, all of the sudden, these parents mostly white parents, who have moved across town, as you said, as a result of white flight, to get away from black children when they started to move into their old districts. Those folks started having town hall meetings and in these town hall meetings they were essentially lobbying their school district to make sure that they were not the school district that was chosen by the unaccredited school districts to bust kids into right they were like you know if they're going to be one or two kids coming here then like we'll figure out a way to deal with it but I don't want those kids and I'm using the language that so many of them use I don't want those kids being bust into my school to, to my child's school so there are literally there's all of this footage from the summer before Michael Brown Jr. is killed of white parents standing in gymnasiums calling black children trash, asking school officials if there are gonna be drug-sniffing dogs in elementary schools. Now the black kids are coming. And I mean, it is if you made the footage black and white, it wouldn't look any different from an angry white citizens council meeting or an angry rally from, you know, Governor Faubus saying segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever, right? It was the same spirit, even though the language was a little bit more coded. At the same time, across town, black families and parents are gathering in churches and they're saying, what am I supposed to do? Because I want my child to have access to their educational opportunities. I want to make sure that they can go to the best school possible, but I don't want to send my child to a school that hates them. And we continued to place parents, black parents in particular, parents of color in particular, In this perverse situation where they have to choose between a school where their child will be loved but maybe not learn all they need to, or what their child will learn but not be loved, right? Wow. And that's a false choice. That is a perverse choice. Totally. Any parent would tell you, I'm going to do whatever I can do to make sure that I don't have to send my child to either one of those situations, but rather that I can send my child to a place where they will learn and be loved. And in so many circumstances, especially in segregated school districts and in segregated um, uh, cities and, and towns... It is impossible for parents to find that magical third choice, unless they have a lot of money to be able to put their child into a private or parochial situation. The fact of the matter is, um, there are not enough spaces where children of color, LGBTQ young people, immigrant young people, disabled young people, can be in a schoolhouse where they are loved and where they learn. And that was that was certainly the case in St. Louis. It's still is the case in St. Louis and this, this conversation about education and, um, integration essentially, um, uh, and and access to equitable resources for all children in our area reached a fever pitch just one year before Michael Brown was killed. Wow! So suddenly, when you had folks out on the streets, people it burned in their memory are not just that you killed this young man and you left his body lying on the street for four and a half hours like he didn't have any dignity, but you talked about him and his classmates who went to an unaccredited school district like they were trash just a year before. Right. I know exactly what you think of our children. I I know what you think of Black children. I'm not confused about this. You've been making it known, you know, ever since I've been alive. You've been making it known ever since I've been living in this place. You've been making it known every time you have the opportunity to show us exactly what you think of our kids.
1: Wow. I mean, yeah, that's... That's intense. and it's something that I was not even aware of um as much as I uh, around the the uprising and when all of that was going on, I tried to kind of look into things and and see what was going on. but i I, I sure. had until you told me the other night I had never even heard of that. and i I wonder, you know around the country, how many people actually are even aware of the situation?
0: Yeah, I don't think many people are. It's such localized news to be honest. And I mean, You and I both know nobody was really checking for most things in St. Louis outside of sports before Ferguson happened. So the idea that some little town in the Midwest was going to be a spark for an entire worldwide protest movement is something most people wouldn't have believed until it happened. So people weren't actually checking for this kind of information. It didn't make a lot of national news. But as somebody who was leading an education organization at the time in the city, you know, that I called home, right? In in my own hometown, that was really big news for us. And figuring out how to navigate it, figuring out how to make sure that those of us who knew better communicated to young people that they are loved, that they are supported, um, and that we have their back no matter where they end up, um, that, uh, that was the work that we had to do. So it was front and center for all of us who were in the middle of it. And this is part of the reason why organizing for equity, whether it's educational equity, racial justice, whatever it is, organizing for equity requires a level of um proximity to what's happening on the ground yes um because like you said even before you came to Ferguson the next year you tried to do a lot of research and have a lot of conversations and meet folks to understand what is the temperature here what's the vibe what's the history that I don't know coming in as an outsider and that is the approach one always has to have when they decide that they want to stand in solidarity with a community that's not their own
1: yeah, and um just wanna be totally clear. I never actually got to go to actual Ferguson.
0: Yeah, but we like but we but we knew you. <laughs> yeah, I
1: was I was there in spirit. I was there via Twitter, which was that's was one of the also amazing things about Ferguson. Um is how, But I actually
0: think that that's even that's even more impactful, right? That you decided to be that intentional about building context for yourself, even though your contacting your support was virtual, right? That you were like amplifying our voices. You were sending folks resources. You were connecting people virtually. All of that digital organizing mattered too. And just because you're organizing digitally doesn't mean that you don't have to take the time to build context. You do. That's right. the responsible way to move.
1: Yeah, I, I fully agree with that. So you, you've mentioned several times about the options that parents have, and you even said, that especially black parents often in these type of cities we're talking about are left with, well, what we would consider non-options, which is um, send your child to a failing school where they might be loved and cared for and, and feel comfortable or send your child, you know, to another place that they're going to be maybe a target even, um, but might get a better education. And in that, that being a non-option, some parents are looking for other things, and I think especially in these type of cities we're talking about, these type of areas, we've seen the the rise in magnet schools and charter schools um, as another option. Um, so I myself, I will say I'm not in any way against charter and magnet schools per se, I'm, I'm for education, however that looks. Um, but I'm also for right. equi- equitable, equitable education. Um, Precisely. but I have seen in both, both areas that I've taught in, I've seen how charter schools and magnet schools can have sort of, uh, let me say a Mm -hmm. damaging effect or further complicate the situation when it comes to traditional public schools and specifically funding and performance and the way that schools are rated. Are you able to speak to that a little bit?
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more that I care far less about the governance structure of a school as long as it is doing two things. One, that it is educating children well. And when I say educating children well, I'm not just talking about academics. I'm also talking about cultural affirmation, um, cultural confidence, and and critical consciousness, um, which, which are the three pillars of, of culturally responsive pedagogy. Um, so they have to be educating children well, irrespective of the, the school structure. But they also have to have a level of accountability, transparency, um, Uh, and community responsibility, right, which is um, one of the complaints that I have about the current charter system. It's not that charters exist. It is that they are able to raise and spend money without really informing the community or even its own students and families how that is happening. Um, They don't really have, many of them don't actually have to inform anybody if they're making, if if someone is making a profit off of the school. Mm. Um, And they're not accountable to the ways in which um, they could be siphoning off resources from, from others, right? So, from like from other schools, from public school districts, et cetera. So, we've got a real challenge here in figuring out how we, and this is just on charter schools. I'll get to magnet schools in a second. We've got a real challenge here in figuring out this accountability and community uh, resource piece. Um, I think that I and, you know, I think that what is unfortunate is that the conversation in education has has really devolved into camps. You are either pro charter, pro charter or anti charter. Right. Right. And like people will size you up depending on your answer to that question. Charter schools have become a litmus test. And so if you say what you and I have just said, like, actually, I'm like. Pro-charter, if these things are true, right, Right. and I'm pro-traditional public, if these things are true, then people look at you like you've got four heads, right? And you're like, we are not allowed to have a nuanced conversation, and it's, it's very, very difficult for us to get out of a binary and actually have a conversation that is focused on results, outcomes, and affirmations for young people. Um, Because there are a whole lot of parents who every single day choose to send their child to a traditional public school. And there are a whole lot of parents every single day who choose to send their child to a charter school. None of those parents love their children any less or more. None of those parents are shills of somebody else's system or vision for their life, right? None of those parents are like, you know, corporate privatizers. Like these are parents trying to make the best decisions (laughs) for their children. These are families trying to get together over the dinner table and figure out what is best for the young people that they love. These are students who are speaking up saying, here's where I want to go. Here's where I don't want to go. Here's where I don't want to go. And because we're not having a nuanced conversation, we're not having a truthful conversation. Look, a lot of people want to say that charter schools are um, part and parcel with uh, the school to prison pipeline and that the cultures in so many of them, these kind of heavy, no excuses cultures are part of what's leading young people, black and brown young people in particular, down a pathway of criminality. That is true of plenty of charter schools, unfortunately, and you will not find me on the on the side of those schools. But that is also true of plenty of traditional public schools. And like, I have had to give people feedback about the militaristic style in which students were walking uh, in in charter schools and in traditional public schools. Heck, when I was teaching a traditional public school, that's how we were trained to teach, to like have our kids walk, right? Right. And I was in a traditional public school district and never questioned it until somebody provoked me into thinking like, actually, there's a different way to conduct ourselves here. Um, I have had to... get a seven-year-old out of handcuffs and it wasn't in a charter school it was in a it was in a traditional public school it was in a district school Um, and I know that there are stories similarly in 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 charter schools so like because we're not operating in reality because we are not telling the truth that none of these schools in the aggregate are serving our children well, especially children from marginalized circumstances, then like we're not actually gonna get to a place where we can properly have a conversation about solutions. So I'm hopeful to see us get out of the binary, start telling the truth and hold everybody accountable to the standard of what is best for kids. Period. End of story. Yeah. Magnet schools, I think, are interesting because, you know, I went to I went to private schools my whole life. So in some ways I had something more akin to a magnet experience because I had to test into this, the, the high school, the secondary school that I went to for seventh through twelfth grade. Um, and there were there were some w- there are ways in which I think. Um, there are, there are some good lessons to learn from magnet schools about how to provide specialized education for young people with particular interests, right? So there are magnet schools for STEM, there are magnet schools for the arts. And I think that there, when a child shows a particular interest and talent in those things, they should have a place to go. But what would it look like if our school systems were truly so robust that, there was real choice. And I don't mean, when I say school choice, I don't mean charter or traditional or magnet. What I actually mean is, there is an excellent free public school within walking or you know distance of public transport that is provided free to the family, that is high quality, that is tailored to whatever your student needs. So if your child needs uh, you know, a great art school, then like they can go to that school and it's a couple blocks away. If your child shows a real talent for STEM, then they can go to this school over here and it's a few blocks in the other direction, right? Like to me, that is what school choice actually looks like. Yeah. That it is access accessible for everyone um, and that it provides different options because every child is different.
1: Yeah. And I mean, to me, that just hearing you say that is hopeful, but I also look at the reality and I wonder will we ever get to a level where that we can do something like that will we ever think that that outside the box um and I, I mean i have no idea if we can but i i would love that um not not just i think that wouldn't so it would be amazing for the students but it would also be amazing for the teachers because teachers have preferences too you know you have teachers who are really excited about the arts, whether even yep. if they're teaching math or whatever, you know. Um, so for them to be able to teach through a lens of some of their interests and their preferences is also amazing for educators, not just students.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. And I hadn't even thought of that, but what you're saying makes perfect sense to me. I remember when I was a teacher, and there were you know there were plenty of days when I taught well, and there were probably many, many, many more days when I had a lot to a lot to learn. Uh, but at the end of my first year, we had we had some fairly strong math scores coming out of our classroom. And what I discovered was that even as a humanities major, I think because I struggled so much in math as a, as a young person, right, in my early formative years, I took a lot of additional care in how I translated mathematic concepts yep. to my eight and nine-year-olds. And so because I knew I had trouble, I had to be really deliberate in making sure that any child who was like me had it really broken down for them. And so I think that's what helped aid our success. And so, like, we had plans to departmentalize Um, moving into my third year of teaching. I was going to go with my third graders to the fourth grade, and one teacher was going to do history and reading and I was going to do math and science instruction exclusively ultimately my school leader at the time decided not to do that at the last minute it was a very frustrating decision because uh. it felt like it was what it's what would have been best for kids because I had a discernible talent in something and so instead of making me do things that I'm not as good at right. it is a benefit to the students it is a benefit to me if I can focus in on a particular area that um that allows all of us to be at our best, right? And so, you know, what you're talking about is the same kind of idea, right? If, if you are, a, 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 you know, I mean, there are folks who like, were, have been in the banking industry for 25 years, and they say, you know I'm looking for a second career, and they wanna enter education. I want to see those folks you know, in teacher leadership at a STEM school because they've got the real world experience that can make math relatable for young people. Like I don't want to see them having to do all of this other stuff that they may not have a talent or an interest in. So I think what you're saying is a fantastic idea.
1: Awesome. So let's, let's start it.
0: Yeah, let's do it. I'm I'm down.
1: Okay. It's going to be so easy. I'll
0: I'll find you the money.
1: Oh, perfect. I love that. (laughs) That's a great deal. (laughs) Um, all right, so it this this sort of is a good segue into this next question because this issue that we're talking about, um, specifically just how segregated our schools continue to be and lack of funding related to that, it just it seems so trapped in history, and it's just so deeply rooted and it's literally tied to entire geographic areas where people live. Um, So change can kind of seem hopeless and overwhelming at times. Um, So I don't want, I don't like to get caught up in the hopelessness and the fog of feeling overwhelmed by the problems. I like to see solutions. So right now, as we look at it, you know, until our (laughs) little new school plan can get up and running, um, what are practical, tangible solutions that community members can engage in? to see actual change come in in cities like we're describing
0: i think the first thing is to be hyper aware school board meetings are notoriously empty places (laughs) unless you've got something on the agenda or unless there is a particular issue that has outraged the community usually nobody is in there and if you can attend a meeting just to stay abreast of what is going on in your school district, do it. If you can't attend a meeting, then get online the next day and get those minutes, right? And read through them. Um, share what you know with your neighbors. Um, I think also people underestimate the power of what a willing person with, you know, a, uh, you know, a healthy spirit and a little bit of free time can do for a school in their community. Um, There may be a librarian who's looking for some help organizing a new library. There may be somebody who needs help coordinating the dental van that can come around and give kids checkups because that dental health is actually really important to a young person's success in the classroom. There may be somebody who, you know, need, there may be a school that needs help cleaning out a back room to make room for a new classroom. And if you just show up and say, Hey, you know, I live around the corner. I live two blocks away. I've got five hours a week that I can donate to you all. How can I be supportive? You never, ever know what's possible there. And that is an offer that so few people make. But when it is made, schools are so ready and excited to take you up on it um, because because it's, schools are really just an all-hands-on-deck kind of right. space. Um, I also think that it's uh, critically important that as we enter, or as we continue, rather, in this season of elections, that you are aware of what the proposals are on the table, not just at the presidential level, but most importantly, at the local and state level. It is state legislatures and state departments of education who are making really important decisions for what's happening in your your community. So get familiar with the gubernatorial candidates and what they propose to do, who they propose to appoint um, to be their heads of of education in the state. Um, Get clear on uh, superintendents uh, uh, and school board members and all of those kind of folks. And make sure that you are really engaged in those local elections, um, because those are the people who are making decisions that dictate the everyday. The outcomes of students in your community. Oh,
1: yeah, that's great. For everybody listening, I think most people probably already know who you are and what you're about. But for those who might not, where can they find you? How can they follow you? What can they get involved with? Um, what's going on with you?
0: Sure. Well, I'm I am Miss Pack Yeti at all social media. Um, so, which basically means Instagram and Twitter because I do not understand. TikTok and i haven't (laughs) been on snapchat ever since rihanna told me not to be um i i co-host another podcast which you should download right after you download this one called pod save the people um new episodes drop every tuesday where we talk about the undercovered news um i'm editing my first book so that should be out sometime next year it's called we are like those who dream it is a combination of speeches by Black women that I've curated from throughout history and some personal essays mixed in there as well that I have written. Uh, so, yeah, that's me. And I'm grateful that you are doing this work and having these conversations, friend.
1: Thank you. And I'm so, I'm um, so happy that you were able to be on the second episode. You know, I uh, appreciate you and you're just always doing something, but in, in a good way. <laughs> Like the students tell me, Mr. Dalton, you're doing the most, but you, <laughs> that, I don't think they mean that in a good way, but you, you are doing the most, but in the best way. And you're always out there doing stuff. You're, um, just an amazing voice for this generation. And the work you're doing is real and tangible and I can literally feel it shifting and changing and gaining momentum. Um, and it's been amazing to to watch that over the course of these last few years. So I really... Uh,
0: wow, I really appreciate that.
1: I appreciate well, you. Well, you know,
0: the feeling is mutual and I am looking for you and your incredible partner to write a book about how to parent incredible children because <laughs> um, you all are raising really conscious, really joyful, uh, creative um you know future world changers so there's something for all of us to learn from that in addition to all the other things that you do
1: i appreciate that and hopefully they'll just write that book themselves the kids
0: (laughs) (laughs) there it is (laughs) all right um, all right right
1: thanks so much and uh of course yeah take care
0: great thanks you too i'll talk to you soon okay
5: Hi, my name is Ashley Cochran. I'm a social worker in Selma, Alabama. I work with a nonprofit who services therapeutic foster children who have a variety of special needs. Um, One issue that I have with the education system is the lack of resources. I feel that for children who have special needs, whether they be behavioral or otherwise, um, the appropriate classroom materials, whether that be... um, different types of seating arrangements, different types of activities that children can use to do their classwork. Um, Those things are not being provided to children who are um, in need of them. Additionally, there is a lack of assistance from qualified professionals in the classroom. So um, I know that oftentimes Especially in special education classrooms, there may be one teacher. Sometimes there is a paraprofessional. But sometimes there are children who need more individual attention, which would require those classrooms to have more than just one to two paraprofessionals in them. And so I have not been successful in being able to have these things provided to children that I work with on a regular basis. Thank you. Thank you so
1: much for calling in, Ashley, and this topic is very close to my heart as a special education teacher. Most unfortunately, I can attest to the fact that there are special education students all over the country who are not receiving the services that are outlined in their IEP and the services that they deserve, especially related to this episode's topic in certain communities that are underfunded or have been forgotten, or when, in cases where schools are underfunded understaffed, aren't able to provide least restrictive appropriate services to their special education population. And unfortunately, in some situations, when they think that they can take advantage of the fact that parents might not know their rights, students might not know their rights. And in a situation like you're speaking of with foster children, they know that those children, unfortunately, might not have someone that is going to really fight for them, and push for them. So I'm glad you're in their life to do that. So if you find yourself in a situation like this, here are some basic things you can do. First of all is know your rights. Know the rights of your child. Know the rights as a parent. These rights are outlined in IDEA, and they should be provided to you once a year in an IEP meeting. Second, know your IEP. Know your child's IEP. What is outlined in the IEP? Make sure that the services that are on the IEP are services that will allow your child to receive equitable education. So if there are services that you feel should be on there that are not, you can call an IEP meeting and together with the IEP team, you can determine the appropriate services for your child to receive equitable education. After you have the appropriate services, make sure that the school and the teachers are following those services. Make sure that your student is receiving the appropriate accommodations and modifications that allow them to access the content and the curriculum. I always say that the best differentiation is a differentiation that allows all students to bend but not break, meaning differentiation should challenge the student, but it should be to the point where the student is not gonna feel totally broken or like they cannot access the material that they need to access. And finally, once all the appropriate services are in place, you just have to push and fight to ensure that those services are provided for your child. Start with the teachers. Approach them in a non-confrontational way and ask them how they are providing services for your student. Remember, you all are a team and you'll be working with them throughout the year. If that doesn't work and you've called an IEP meeting to express your concerns, speak to the principal. If nothing happens after that, go to the district. If nothing happens after that, go to the state. We need to go as far as we have to go to ensure that equitable services are being provided to our kids. An IEP is not a special treat. It is a legal document that has to be followed to ensure that students are accessing education and information in the way that they deserve it. Is it your homework? For more information about Brittany or to get in touch with her, visit her website at BrittanyPACnet.com. As she said, you can also follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Miss Yeti, And you can follow the link to the podcast she co-hosts, Pod Save the People, on UsPodcast.com extended learning page. Also, there you will find the links of some of the articles I mentioned in the I Do segment. Along with those things, I can also recommend the following books that are related to this episode's topic. Ghost in the Schoolyard by Eve L. Ewing and Simple Justice by Richard Kluger. For the links to these and other resources, visit the extended learning page at weteachuspodcast.com. Exit ticket. 65 years ago, the Supreme Court ruled that segregation in schools is unconstitutional. But it seems that, in many ways, we are trapped in history and history is trapped in our schools, leaving many school districts all across America completely segregated. As Brittany pointed out, the push for school integration is not based in the warped, incorrect idea and implication that black and brown students are somehow made better by sitting next to and being in proximity to white students and whiteness. But the conversation of school integration is about equitable access to resources. Segregated schools lead to segregated resources and this segregation is contributing to the degradation of schools and even entire cities and districts across the country. We have to get involved where we can to end segregation in our schools and push for equitable education for all. We have to push for change. We have to fight for something better for ourselves and our kids. Thanks for tuning into this episode. Visit our website at We Teach Follow and interact with us on Twitter at We Teach Us. Like our Facebook page at Facebook.com/We Teach Us Podcast. And call in and leave a voicemail to give your input for the You Do segment at 615-348-7303. Lastly, subscribe to We Teach Us on whatever streaming platform you're listening on and spread the word. We Teach Us. Uh.